This is KJEM, KJEM Radio, and we are on the air. I'm Craig Phillips. And I'm Amy Rhodes. We're your hosts, and we want to welcome you to a special edition of the Truly Outrageous World of Gem. Tonight, we are honored to have joining us the legendary voice actor, Jack Angel. Jack's career is as amazing as the voices he provided throughout the years. From TV shows to video games, Jack's voiceover work can be heard practically everywhere. And tonight, he's going to shed some light for the fans on his fabulous career. Well, welcome, Jack. Thank you. So, um, as, as um, we pointed out, that uh, this is truly an honor for both Amy and I because you've done so many shows and things that we loved as kids. And uh, we talked a little bit, you know, before about, um, you know, how you got into this. And um, so, um, I guess, why don't we start off with uh, just the inevitable, how did voice acting actually come about for you? Well, I was a disc jockey first, and uh, I'd gone to San Francisco State to study uh, radio and television, and there was a disc jockey in town in San Francisco at the time. His name was Don Sherwood, and he did funny voices and told jokes, and I thought, what a great life that's got to be. Work three hours, four hours maybe, tell jokes, play music you like, do funny voices, make people laugh, and they pay you. And uh, so I decided that that's what I wanted to do. That Good was, choice. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be a stepping stone to bigger and better things, uh, to radio, to, to uh, television and movies and all that stuff. And I've done a little bit of that, as you know, never, but not so much on camera. It, it, it never occurred to me that I would wind up just being behind the camera and never seen. Uh, but that's okay. It's been a great career. Wow. Well, it's a fabulous career. I mean, my goodness, just look back at all you've accomplished. I know somebody. Uh, we, we are curious to know who were your influences. Well, that guy Don Sherwood was one of them. Uh, and, uh, uh, gee, other, uh, you know, Johnny Carson. Uh, oh, yeah. A lot of dead guys uh, were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Steve Allen, of course, was uh, one of the great. Oh, I love Steve Allen. Oh, such a such a great guy. And I love Johnny Carson too. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, classic. You know, people like that, and uh, uh, you know Humphrey Bogart was yes, Bogie was was one of my favorite actors. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Always in Paris. You know, it's funny because um, what what I'm hearing when when you said like Steve Allen and, and Johnny Carson, it seems like comedy was kind of something that you really kind of got into quite quite early on in your career. Yeah, well, I, I used to, before I ever got into radio and television, I was able to do funny voices. And uh, my father had a grocery store during World War II. And people came in who, I mean, uh, there was a, an old Italian guy who came in. And during World War II, a lot of things were rationed and were sent to the troops, like cigar- cigarettes, gum, and things like that. This old Italian guy had no teeth, and he would come in the store every day. And he'd say, hey, John, you got gum? You, you got gum? And I always wondered what the hell he was going to do with the gum if he got any, because he had teeth. And then there was an a old black wino who used to come in, and he drank muscatel, and he would say, I want me a bottle of muscatelli. <laughs> that is awesome. And then my my father's butcher was a Chinese guy, Eddie Wong, and he spoke with a Chinese accent. And my father was Greek, and he spoke with a Greek accent. So I used to do impressions of all these. And my mother thought I was the funniest kid around. And uh, so if you can make your mother laugh, uh, particularly in the midst of a depression uh, or a war, you know, that's a step in the right direction. So... I, I've, I realized that one of the ways to to uh, to be cool in a lot of people is to make them laugh. So I, people would tell me a joke, and I would lock that baby in, and I would tell. I still remember jokes today that I learned in high school. Wow, that's impressive. That's really that impressive. <laughs> yeah, the little catalog in there, you know, it's like flip cards. Yeah, is it is it really hard um, to? 
diversify your voice or has it always been, been kind of a natural thing for you to do just to you know pull from different areas of of your of your i guess your voice or you know i've heard like susan blue for example has said there's certain ways you can actually um train yourself to do it like you know pulling from your head the front of your face the back of your throat and all that stuff has it always been kind of a natural thing for you to do yeah yeah and people have asked from time to time how do you do that and uh i, I you know, at first I really didn't have an answer because it's just something you do. It's like if you throw a basketball up to a hoop and it goes in, how do you do that? Well, you do it and it does it. Uh, yeah. But then I realized, okay, there is a, a thing you could do. So if you do this, you make that kind of a noise, now you got two or three ways to go. You can be an old hillbilly guy. <laughs> or, or you Hey, Bucko, you can be a pirate. No. You know, I mean, there's yeah. there's a variety of things you can do with that voice. Or, uh, oh, oh, if you get down here, that's somebody else. Oh, here's somebody else. Uh, so, so, you know, and you hear voices of other people, and then you kind of, like, mock them or imitate them. And mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Pretty soon you've got a character. I was going to ask you, Jack, um, Mel Blanc is the man of the thousand voices. Um, would he have been one of your inspirations and things like that to diversify your voice at all? He was until I met him. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what, what happened there? If you can elaborate. Here was my problem with him. He came from Portland, Oregon, and I was a disc jockey up there for a few years. And because he came from Portland, they had their own version of the Rose Parade every year, and they would invite him up to be the Grand Marshal. And one year they invited him to be the Grand Marshal, and I invited him to come over and be on my radio show. So we were talking about doing funny voices, and whenever I had anybody who was a talent on my show who did funny voices, I did not do any. Uh, I didn't want to try to upstage them. So, uh, so we would just chat about it. And there's another uh, Vegas performer named Rich Little. And uh, I said uh, something about Rich Little. And he said, oh, he's, he's nothing. And I said, he's not? And he said, no, he just does what other people, he imitates other people. I create voices. And I thought, what a pill. This guy, and I didn't actually use the word pill in my mind. But, you know, I thought, hey, why can't you acknowledge the talent of somebody else? Uh, but he wanted to be the whole hog. And... Uh, I met him at a party another time, and he was nasty, and I, I had that look. Uh, oh, that's the same. Yeah, I, I hate it when, uh, when, you, uh, when you meet somebody that you admire, and they turn out to be uh, whatever, you know, n not. Yeah, I mean, you build them up to be so great, and then if you meet them and they're not, what a letdown. Yeah, right. Oh, that's sad. I mean, because I've always admired what he's done, you know, throughout my childhood, and, you know, as most of us did. Yeah, but, great um, stuff. Yeah, he did. I mean, th this is kind of funny for me is that um, when I was in seventh grade, um, I actually started to learn how to do voices like um, Yogi Bear and Boo Boo and things like that. I do not remember the guy who did the voices originally um, in the 60s, Dawes. but who was that? Dawes Butler. Oh, that was Dawes. Okay, thank you. And um, I can't do it anymore, unfortunately, because it's it's a really kind of a weird register for my voice. But you know, it was those kind of things when I was a kid, and having toys that I would like when my, I had my Transformers, for example, I'd make all the voices that I could for the characters as I you know do my plays and things like yeah, that. I think it was we all fun. did that growing up playing. Like you know, I'd play with my gem toys or whatever and do all the voices. And I think that's a natural part of being a kid. And my goodness, right. if you can get wonderful at it and make a career out of it that's great if you can get paid for yeah. it that's even better yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> when i was a kid there was no television there was just radio and the radio was not like radio today the radio was what television uh, is today and we had television radio shows like the lone ranger and tonto riding down the trail you know that <laughs> great kimosabi <laughs> and uh, so so I would, we would play Lone Ranger and Tonto, and my older brother had two six guns and a mask, and I had an Indian suit, so it was perfect. You know, we 
he was a Lone Ranger, I was Tonto. And, and we did the voices as, west, as best we could. And there, were, there was a radio show where this guy said, uh, I am the keeper of the secrets of the sea. I know all. I tell nothing. And it was like, what a cool voice, you know? So I used to copy him, and, you know, just different ones. So like as you did growing up, so did I. Uh, I, I got my inspiration from people on the radio and and uh, and people in the grocery store. <laughs> and I think for you know Amy and myself, I mean, we can draw from people like yourself, you know, to to really, you know, if if we want to do this for fun and things like that. Like, um, well, for example, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And so, if you look up to somebody, you try to sound like them, and then that could lead to something else. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. I often young people say to me. I want to make a demo tape. How do I do that? Uh, of funny voices. And I say, uh, go to ArleneThornton.com, which is my agent, and click on where it says animated voices or female animations or male animations, and start listening to people. And if you come across this guy does a voice that you do, you say, oh, wait, write that down and give it a name. And then keep listening, and you hear another one that you do, write that one down. Now you've got a whole list of voices that you know you do. You just don't have anything for them to say. And then start listening to other people doing different things and steal the lines from different characters. And now you've got lines for your characters to say. And you can sit in front of a microphone and you can practice and practice and practice. And pretty soon you've got a demo tape. Yeah, that that's awesome. And, you know, for me... Um... One of the voices I love doing is, and I'm I've actually gotten really good at it, is um, Frank Oz's version of Cookie Monster, and it's a vo- what's that? Okay. Hello, this Cookie Monster. Ha ha. You have cookie. Good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Great. And um, you know, i also I've also kind of like. Um, um, at long last, the Lutian Pure's explosive space modulator is finally complete. You know, Marvin the Martian type of thing, oh, yeah. and um, you know, it's it's always been fun because I can crack people up. I always like every time I do like Cookie Monster, she gets a big kick out of yeah, that. Yeah, it's funny. How do you both get wrapped up in Jim? Well, I'll let Amy go with that one because that's a good story for her. Well, I mean, Jim was my childhood. I mean, I was four years old when it started, and so I really can't remember not liking it. I've always been a huge fan, and so it's just a lifelong thing and and influenced other parts of my life. Like That's what got me to start writing stories, start drawing, and all these other things that I do was because of being inspired by that show. But uh, it, it's a lifelong thing, and then to get to do a radio show out of it, that's just icing on the cake. Did you know whatever happened to Jim? What was that? Do you know why Jem disappeared from the from the uh, television? Oh yeah, the dolls weren't selling as well as they expected. So no. the, that's exactly, part of it. Yeah, uh, w- what happened was the FCC had a rule that if you had a doll like Jem, and you had a show like the Jem show, you could not advertise your doll in the show, or that would just make the show a half-hour commercial. So they, so they weren't allowed to advertise Jim in the Jim show. Well, Jim uh, and the Holograms was the number one show with little girls. So that left it open for Mattel, uh, uh, their worst enemy, to come in with Barbie and advertise Barbie in the Jim show. And at Christmas time, the Barbies just flew off the shelves, and the Jim doll sat there because the girls didn't even know it existed apparently. Yeah, and it's sad because of the differences. Like, Jem was bigger and cost more and everything, yep. and it affected the sales. And I do remember Barbie commercials cutting into Jem. It's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> and, yep. and so, so they, the has, people at Hasbro said, you know, we've created a platform for our n- nemesis to sell their toys, and we can't sell ours. We're in the wrong business. And they, <laughs> And they canceled all their television shows. And that's really sad, too, because, you know, 
as, as someone, now I've only been in a gym about four years, but I do remember it as a kid. But, you know, part of it, a lot of it scared me in a way because, well, first you had the gem girl theme, and that wasn't supposed to be used. And then you had the pinks and all that stuff. And for me, it just kind of like, yeah, I'll stick to my Transformers and G.I. Joe and Voltron stuff and, you know, ignore the show. But I, I vaguely remember certain episodes because. As a, as a musician, I've been a musician almost all my life, and I've been writing lyrics since I was about 14, and there were always harmonies and melodies that I was hearing, and I didn't realize that it was actually coming from things I'd heard on Gem, which I didn't know yeah, about. Yeah, you must have watched it then at some point. I, I think I did, yeah. And then in um, 2008, I was reliving my childhood and um, just watching cartoons that I'd grown up with as a kid. One show that I remember watching, The Bionic Six. And I loved, loved, loved that show. I was obsessed with it. And I was always interested in who the cast members were. Well, a person's name, Bobby Block, came up in the list. And I'm like, who is that? And I went and put in IMDB, typed in Bobby Block, and sure enough, that came up with the voice of Meg Bennett on the series. And it also had a tie into Jem. So I'm like, well, who is this Jem? And I looked it up and I'm like, Oh wow! How cool is this show? So that started my addiction, and uh, and then uh, Bobby Black is actually now known as Samantha Paris, and she has that uh, voiceover studio called Voice Tracks in uh, Sausalito, I believe. Right. So um, and uh, you know what an amazing talent you know she is. You know, you know, we used to work together. Yeah. And, yeah, she's. Uh, I love her. She's a great chick. Yeah, she really is. We we would love to you know meet, talk to her and things like oh, yeah. that. Oh yeah, we both so. uh, are big fans of Roxy from the show, and since she did Roxy, <laughs> she's great. <laughs> Have you tried talking to her? Um, it, it's we don't really know how to get a hold of her. The only way we know of is through her studio, and so far, no luck with that. Really? Oh, that's yeah. Uh, it's a shame. Well, keep trying. Yeah, we'll 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 we have to keep trying because I mean she's so she's so you know wonderful and you know she's done more than just you know drop some names of, of people that like me that she's worked with and say uh, uh, you know we've we've had Jack on the show and we've had this show you know Dan, yeah. Dan on the show and uh, maybe that'll spark her to, to come and do it because she's a great yeah. girl. Oh, that's a good idea, Amy. There you go. Yes, we would so <laughs> love to talk to her. I'm going to keep trying. Yeah, true that. Yeah, we had um, we've had uh, Louise Dorsey on here who played Jetta. We've had Patricia Albrecht who is just phenomenally hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had Samantha Newark on here. So, and of course yourself. And we've had Will Minio and on the Desiree show. Desiree Goyen. Uh, Desiree was our f- our fifth episode of KGM Radio, and that was pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, we've we've definitely had um, some of our big name celebrities on here, and it's it's truly again it's we're humbled that, you know, you guys take the time and actually say, hey, yeah, we'll chat with you. I mean, it's it's so awesome because to, to me... Wait a minute. You know what? You know, it always bothers me that that people begin to read their press notices and all of a sudden think they're bigger than that. Come on. <laughs> you're just another person and you got lucky. And if you're in show business and you're able to make a living in show business, you got lucky, and you got to get down and kiss the ground you walk on sometimes. And and one of the one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was my first job in radio, and this guy named Jim Young said to me, "Jack, you're a pretty talented guy, but don't start believing your press notices because uh-huh. that's stuff you wrote about yourself. And if you start believing that stuff, then you're gonna." You're going to think you deserve special treatment, and you don't. And all, oh. all those people who who uh, think they're too good to talk to you on on a radio show are are fooling themselves. I mean, where would we be without fans, for God's sake? Well, that, that very, is a very good true. point. But you know, we've been really blessed because everybody that we have talked to has really been just as down to earth as you and very nice. And so we've had nothing but good experiences so far. Good, good. And we've been doing yes. this show for two years, so now, do we you did. Know, do you know who I was on, Jim? Yes, we do, actually. Who was I? You were Emmett Benton. You were Je- uh, Jerrica and Kimber's father. And who else's father? 
Oh, Bonnie. Oh, Bonnie. So then, um, then was it Charlie Adler who did the voice of Harvey? Charlie was Gabor. Charlie was there. Char Charlie is now. There's an amazing. Have you talked to Charlie? We've never gotten him on the show. No, we'd love to though. We'd love to get him on the show. Yeah, well, he's busy. He's a busy man. Uh, yeah, he says he's busy. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Charlie. Uh, Charlie grew up in Nyack, New York, and he wanted to be an actor. And uh, Harvey Firestein was uh, doing the Torch Song trilogy on Broadway, and uh, they were looking for. He wanted to, to get off the show and get somebody to replace him. And Charlie uh, got on a train uh, from Nyack and rode into New York City. And I said, "How did you get that role?" And he said, "I told myself I was a light globe, and that." I would shine brighter and brighter the closer I got to New York. And he said, and then as I walked down the street going from the train station to the studio or through the theater, I would just be so bright I would stop traffic. And when I got on stage to actually do my audition, I would be so bright I would just blind everybody to anybody else. And he got the role. And uh, so he became Harvey Firestein. And one of his lines was, is it so wrong to want to be loved by someone? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So Charlie came to town. And uh, my uh, my wife is Arlene Thornton, who is my agent. And uh, he came into uh, her agency at the time. And uh, one of the on-camera said, uh, lady said, uh, uh, we have a guy that just came in from New York and we want him, but he wants to do voiceover. Would you look at him? And she said, "Because you have a tape." She said, "No." And she said, "Well, okay, I don't, I don't hold out much hope, but let me talk to him." So Charlie came in, and uh, they chatted, and he said, "Well, can I show you what I do?" And she said, "Sure." So he went in the studio. He said, "Can I turn the light out?" She said, "Yeah." And he says, "Can I turn my back?" And she said, "Yeah." And so Charlie did his dog and pony show and blew everybody away. And that, so they decided to represent it for for uh, animation. And they sent him out, and on the first 12 things that he auditioned for, he got. Now, if you get one out of 12, you're doing really good. Charlie got 12 out of 12. And the funny wow. funny part of it was on number 13, he called up one day, and he said, Hey, what happened to that thing that I auditioned for? And she said, Oh, you didn't get it. And there's a big, long pause, and he said, What do you mean I didn't get it? <laughs> he, wow. He tried for it. Well, anyway, he... He, Charlie's legendary here. I mean, he's he's an amazing guy, and uh, he's now doing most of his work is directing. Although he still voice work, mm -hmm. he's doing a lot of animation, directing and animation. Wow, that's great. is there any directing uh, anything that you're interested in directing at all? Well, I, I not particularly. I, I have a, a a a little company that. Uh, uh, formed a few friends of me uh, called blackjackanimation.com and we decided we would do uh, nasty cartoons and so if you go to blackjackanimation.com uh, you'll find a little show called The Dawn of the Fly, D-O-N, The Dawn of the Flies and uh, it's about these mafia flies and it's kind of it's nasty but yeah. if you're grown up You've heard all those words, and and if you haven't grown up yet, what are you doing, listening to nasty stuff? You know. <laughs> that's true. I think I think I remember you sent me a that link, in fact, uh, to some session work that you had done on that show, and it was some behind the scenes stuff. And then they like filmed like you get sitting behind your or sitting in your um, little area with your right. music stand. And uh, I checked. I was actually really interested, really intriguing. Um, what has anything gone on with that since then, or are you still working on it? Or yeah, we're, we uh, we we uh, the, the the group kind of broke up a little bit, so we've been trying to figure out what do we do with it, and uh, we're we're getting ready to hold meetings again and see what the next step is. Wow, that's that's just so cool to to hear about that. So, are, is there anything that you're doing currently? Is this just this kind of like working with your company and things like that, or do you have like other voice acting stuff that you're kind of working on? Well, I, you know, it's it's not as it's not as uh, as busy for me as it used to be when I was younger, uh, but uh, 
I had eight auditions yesterday. I mean, maybe something will come of some of those. And if nothing does, there'll be eight more tomorrow, you know. And uh, uh, I, I've done a lot of Pixar stuff, as you probably know. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> and there's a new Pixar movie coming out in, in June, uh, which is uh, the promos are, are in the theaters now for, for the Monster, Monster University. And uh, I'm in that. So, you know. Oh, that's pretty cool. I love the Pixar movies. I'm going to have to see that. <laughs> yeah. Anything the, Disney. Yeah. Well, the, the Pixar particularly. The, God, the, those people have just revolutionized animation. And uh, now that John Lasseter, who was the creative head of Pixar, is now the creative head of Disney animation. Disney animation has gotten a lot better. Wow, that's incredible. But what about the, the voice acting side of things? Like, how do you feel about the current state of voice acting? Like, when did you see a change? Because we know that now so many parts go to already big names or movie stars and less to people that just made it their life and worked their way up. <clears throat> yeah, well, uh, uh Part of that is Jeffrey Katzenberg over at uh, DreamWorks. Katzenberg said a long time ago, I don't know why these people are movie stars. Uh, I don't know what they did to become movie stars, but they are stars and they're there for a reason and therefore I want them in my movies, not just workaday voice actors. And what, what he doesn't understand is that before those people were stars, those people were workaday actors. Uh, for an example, if, if, uh, if you watched Friends yeah. here, uh, it was a big smash. Well, there was one star and a bunch of other actors who nobody ever heard oh, of. Oh, yeah, they were unknowns at the oh, time. And, and what happened was that they all became big stars. But at the time that that show premiered, I could have given you five times five actors who would have been just as good and just as unknown on a show like that. They grew up on that show, and they got better, and they got better, and they got better, and they all became stars. Well, that's how you become a star. You get lucky. You got on a show, you know? And then people saw you and said, oh, oh, God, hey, that person could do this and that and the other thing. So... For Katzenberg to say, I don't know why, how, why they're stars, they just are, he obviously hasn't looked at the business from a practical point of view. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and, and so a, a lot of the stuff is done by stars. Everybody, yeah, well, if we can, if they can get Tom Hanks and they can get this guy and they get that guy, we can do so. Let's hire stars. And it seems like they're using the big names to, you know, draw attention to whatever the movie or TV show is when there's so many other talented people that could do just as well. Well, and that's the other thing. They can say, we've got Tom Hanks and we've got Brad Pitt and we've got all these different people, Eddie Murphy. And uh, so so they, they don't say the donkey is Eddie Murphy. They say Eddie Murphy's in this movie, you know. And they go, wow, I mean, a lot of people love Eddie Murphy, so they're going to go see the movie, and then they realize he's doing the voice of a donkey, and that's fine. <laughs> but, but you know, you're not really going to go see Eddie Murphy. Um, but that's okay. It, it, you know, the, everything, if, you, if you'll notice, everything is kind of on a pendulum. And it goes to one extreme one way, and then the pendulum goes back in a different direction. And then it goes to an extreme that way. And then it comes back, but it never goes back where it was. It always veers off to the left or right. And, and, it's, and it's different. So the, the old flat animation guys will say, oh, Disney was better when it was flat animation. And Disney is still doing flat animation because that's their roots. But, but there's no doubt that, that computer-generated animation is, you know, rules the, rules the waves today. And... So all the old guys, yeah, I can understand why they'd be disappointed, but that's progress. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the shows I wanted to touch on, of course, was probably probably the one that you're probably best known for is uh, the Transformers, and what that was like for you to be part of 
such an iconic show to millions of fans around the world and not not to mention you know working with some of the the top you know your cohorts basically the top people in in your field that had to have been something really fun to be able to play off these people you know on a consistent basis it absolutely was i mean you you can't you just can't imagine how cool it was you 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 got frank welker in there uh, frank is maybe the best animation guy ever ever he in fact there's a there's a thing on my website uh let me see what is it it's uh no, it's not about. Oh yeah, resources. Uh, there is a there is a um, a website. Why I can't find it. Resources. Oh, there it is. It's uh, it's called uh, by the numbers. And and this uh, my my website by the way for anybody listening is jackangel.com. And in there, okay. uh, in resources is is. Uh, is by the numbers. This lists uh, different categories, but in the particular category that, that comes up when you click on it is movies that have grossed $100 million plus the stars who are in the movies. Frank Wilker is by far number one. He's been in 97 movies that have grossed $100 million or more. Tom Hanks is second. Samuel Jackson is third. Tom Cruise is fourth. Bob Bergen is fifth, Stan Lee is sixth, and I'm number seventh. Uh, I used to be number four. It fluctuates. It goes back and forth. Uh, but uh, Welker it, it is, um, is an amazing talent, just amazing talent. And, and Bergen is a great talent. Uh, and there was a, uh, there's a lot of other people on that list who are voiceover actors who were in a lot of Disney movies and they grossed a hundred million dollars and therefore they're on that list as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, right. You get in a room with a dozen guys who are the statue of the guys who did Transformers and, uh, you're playing off some of the, some of the greatest guys in the world. Yeah. I think one of the most iconic things that I thought was really neat was, um, Roger Carmel, and I know you and I have had a discussion about him. Um, I remember seeing him for the first time actually on screen in uh, Hogan's Heroes. He played in an episode of that and later found out, of course, that he was the voice of Cyclonus um, after the, or during the movie and then a little bit after the movie until you took over the role. Um, Not during the movie. During the movie was Orson Welles. As Unicron. He was Unicron. I, th I thought... Yeah. Uh, right, right, okay, Unicron. And then he, yeah, yeah. And Roger took over as Unicron in the series, and then yes. Roger died, and I took over as Unicron in the series after Roger. Yes, I, I always thought that was just so amazing to to have that because that guy had such a unique voice. I mean, his voice was just like you knew it was him. You know, I mean, when when, when Roger ever Roger had a big handlebar mustache. He yes, he played uh, uh, Harry Mudd uh, in uh, Star Trek. The, the trouble with tribbles and he was a he was a spy a, a space pirate kind of guy he was cool and he, he was a big guy and, uh, and so whenever he would come in I would always announce him I don't know how it started but I was a gentleman Roger C Carno and he was thank you very much thank you very much and he was very very verbose at the handlebar which were and uh, one day he was late and I couldn't announce him because the show had already started so I held up a card that has his name. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what was your experience like working with, um, you know, the great Peter Cullen? Well, Peter was another one. I mean, uh, Peter was a great guy. He still is a great guy. Uh, he uh, very talented uh, and a nice guy, you know. The, the, yeah. the one guy I didn't like, God, I can't even remember his name now, <laughs> uh, the guy that talked like this, he was a he was a bad guy. Um, are, you are you talking Chris Lotta? Yeah, Chris Lotta. Okay. I didn't like Chris Lotta. But I, I didn't really have much foundation for liking him or not liking him, except that he was it, it to my estimate, he was kind of a turd, you know. 
Uh, I shouldn't talk that way about the dead because I'll be dead one of these days. Well, actually, I've figured out a way to live forever, and so far it's working. But <laughs> he, we had a one time, he was wearing a pair of jeans, and he almost was bursting at the seams. And I said, hey, you're putting a little on a little weight, right? And he poked his finger into his leg, and he says, that's not fat, that's muscle. I used to be a dancer. And I thought, what a stupid remark. <laughs> and... Uh, and okay, so I, I let it go. But I, I just, we we just had a, a slightly confrontational relationship. And I, I just, there was something about him that just used to f me off. That's all. Yeah. What about working on Gem? Well, that had to have been really fun to kind of go in from switching from, you know, the Transformers world to the Gem world. And that had to be kind of a huge leap. Well, yeah, I, was, I played Fathers on that. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I I may have played other incidental characters, but uh, you know, being Jim's father was was kind of cool. But that was uh, uh, that was uh, a, a whole different kind of thing because the Transformers were great big. Uh, you know, I'm gonna bust you up. You know, mm-hmm. then they would add synthesizers to it and run it through and and make it more metallic sounding. We never yep. knew. We never knew what the hell we sounded like. Uh, until later, way later on, when it got animated and the show came on, <laughs> and then we'd watch. But by that time, of course, we we we'd already done it. Yeah, and, and they had they had voice track references because uh, every once in a while you you'd come back after three or four weeks, and it'd uh, say, "Okay, this is when smoke screen again." Oh yeah, what do I do for smoke screen? And they say, "Here, and they play it for you." And say, "Oh okay," so they always give you a point of reference. Yeah. One of the things I always loved about, about that show really quick here is is just what they were able to do with your voices. But there's a couple times where like Frank Walker, who was the voice of Soundwave, you could hear you could hear his natural voice, you know, in that, you know, like um excellent ravage. You know, you can hear it without it being processed. Yeah. And it was always interesting to really hear you know, when that was, you know, when that happened or whatever. There's other times where he said, you know, like something like Rat Bat or whatever, you know, after the movie and things like that. So you could hear that his voice had been processed, but it's, it is the coolest thing. And I think that's what hooked me. I mean, Soundway was my favorite character. It was the first toy I got into, in fact, and then Optimus Prime. And then I always wanted, I, I think I had Astro Train actually in my collection too. So, um, of course, that's not one of your characters that you did. Um, but um, I, I never it, saw, I never saw any of those things. Uh, oh really? Well, I, I maybe saw two episodes, two or three max. Oh wow! Because uh, I mean, I have a whole box of every episode ever done that somebody sent me. But at the time, uh, first off, the the shows played when we were working, and so uh, we never had a chance to see them because they were on TV and we were in the studio somewhere doing something else. Uh, so and and at that time we didn't have uh, any way of recording, you know. Back then, you could record off the air. So, uh, or if we did, I, I, I didn't have the facility to do it. Uh, and so uh, I never really saw many of the shows. And, and uh, I thought they were fairly amateurish. I mean, they were written for kids, you know. Right. And, uh, and it shoot them up bang, bang, and, and not really much substance from an adult point of view. But they're okay, you know. And, but... We had no idea they were going to be the iconic, you call as, as you call them, the iconic shows that they turned out to be, because they were just another job. Um, when you go around from studio to studio, and do uh, you know the My Little Ponies today, and and you do uh, uh, you know whatever the other ones are uh, mm-hmm. today, uh, they're just you're lucky that you got another job. That's what they were. It was just another great job. I hope they never stopped doing it, and then it yeah. stopped doing. Yeah, that's that's the one sad thing too. I think I'm not really a fan of a lot of the new stuff that's come out because I think it's just it's not it's not my cup of tea. Well, you know, the I'm quality such a... is not the same in a lot of it. It's like you can tell they rush through some of either the animation or whatever and the writing. It's not the same. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But you know, with with Gem though, I know Amy will agree that. The storylines in a lot of the episodes, especially the one that you're in, that you're really featured in, which is Out of the Past. And that's a fan favorite. I mean, that if you ask any diehard Gem fan, that is 
probably top of their list out of the past. Everybody loves that one. Yeah, and and that's I mean because it's really essentially one ginormous monologue, you know, because it's all you know reading from basically Emmett Benton's diary. And I, I always felt that one was so well written. That was written by Michael Charles Hill, um, who, um, if you know, he worked on Transformers as a writer as well as G.I. Joe. And, you know, that was like his one big episode. And it just blew me away. I mean, it brings me to tears because it's you, you lose, the you know, you lose um, Jackie, his wife, and the plane crash. And then you just don't know what he's going to do. And then he develops synergy. And I always thought, you know, Jack, you did such a brilliant job as Emmett. I mean... Personally, I don't think anybody else could have done that, done that like you did, because with such convention, I, I mean, maybe it's just reading words on a page, but it's it's the delivery. And remember, it's like it's in in some ways, voice acting, like you say, is 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 all about kind of in the radio realm. In that, even though we're seeing visuals, we're still hearing the voices, and it always. You know, it really impacts you know a, a lot of people. I, like I said, I mean, it's such a powerful episode, and really just brilliant job, Jack. I mean, that was well, I, you know by I, I wouldn't know because I don't remember and I never saw it. Aw, <laughs> if you're ever gonna watch one, that would be the one to watch. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, and if, if you're interested, you know, Amy, Amy, or myself, we could send you a link to the actual video, and you actually can watch the entire sure. 22 minutes. Sure, do it. Yeah. But the um, thing with with shows like that, a lot of them from the 80s, is some of them, like Jim, was not written down to the kids. It was like like Christy Marks when she wrote, it was like writing what she wanted to do, what would be interesting, not writing down to like five or ten year olds. Yeah, a lot of them worked on two levels. That there was a, there was stuff for adults and stuff for children, and that's not easy to do. No, you know, and that and that's to me a sign of a really good writer. And I mean, I draw like I, I'm a writer. I've been a writer since fourth grade, and you know, writing stories and short stories. I used to write Transformers short stories, you know, when I was a kid. And even even today, I've written like four four or five gem fan fictions because I just love writing and I draw so much inspiration from these people because they didn't talk down to kids. They never did. I never felt like when I was a kid, I never felt like I was watching a 30 minute commercial. I felt like I was watching something really, really exciting, new and different. And even today as, as a, as an adult, I am still blown away by how well this stuff holds up. Now, some people say Jem is so dated because she was so eighties, but the stories, if you write good stories, that's what really will last the lifetime, despite how the look is. It's always it comes back to the stories and the acting too. I think, and I mean, you guys. I mean, Hollywood had the best actors in you guys, in my opinion. They had the best because that, you know a lot of that is is the responsibility. Go back to Wally Burr. Uh, Wally was able to sit down with a script. First off, he knew he had a sense of what every character should be. And, you know, if you get into uh, the Transformers, for example, how do you differentiate some of those great big steel hulks from, a, from, a, from another one? So, and, and particularly if you're going to synthesize the voices and you get a whole bunch of big voice guys in there, there has to be some way to differentiate one from the other. And Wally, actually, Wally probably could have done all the voices himself uh, because he was so good at it. But, uh, uh, and I, I was kidding, I say you, you probably wanted to do all the voices in these. <laughs> but, but the truth is, it was, I think, without Wally as the director, those shows would not ne have been nearly as good as they turned out. Because he, and there was, I'll tell you, one day, uh, he, he had a way of getting on people if they, if they weren't getting it. And he'd say, and this one day was my turn. And he said, Jack, you're not getting it. Listen. And he'd give me a line reading. And I would give it to him back. And he'd say, no, you're not getting it. Listen. I'd do it again. No, Jack, pay attention. Listen. And he wouldn't tell me what the hell to listen to. He would just give me another line reading. So finally, I just did an imitation of him. And he said, well, now you're just doing an imitation of me. <laughs> <laughs> you could feel the whole thing. It's like... Ten guys in there, and their their hearts all sank. Like, oh, here's the end of Jack. <laughs> and there was a pause, and then he said, "Well, I guess that's okay." And once he said that, the onus was off for everybody, 
because when he was on them and they weren't getting it, they would revert to doing an imitation of him and he would accept it. Wow. He knew how he wanted it done, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, and he did his homework. I mean, this is, this is a guy that really understood now, back in those days, the one thing I always found interesting, and they don't really do this much anymore, is they don't put you on the same room anymore. You know, back in your day, I, they had, you know, 10 people in the same room, and you'd be able to play off each other and actually act. Whereas, like, when I look at something like The Simpsons, where it's like, okay, you come in, and then, and, uh, like, 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, you come in, and then it's just all cut and spliced together. I think that's really kind of a bad way of doing TV shows because it's like, well, then you kind of take away the dynamic of acting. Did you see the movie, you, did you see the movie Balto? I, I have only seen parts of it, sadly. I've seen it. Okay, well, Balto was done in England. And, and uh, uh, there were three of us that the, the, the were the three dogs that were uh, the comedy relief. And uh, so... So they flew us all to England, and we and they wow, they did it one at a time. They did all my lines at once, and then uh, Danny Mann's lines, and then uh, what's his name? So so anyway, they, that's how they did it. And then we all had to go back about a month later because there's an art to recording people uh, one at a time. You have to really hear what the other characters are doing at what level. And if you don't hear it in your head, you can't match one voice to the other if they're having a conversation. So Mr. Spielberg, who had, was the executive producer of the movie, listened to it and he said, no, send them all back and have them do it ensemble. So we all went back, got another trip to, to London out of it, and, and we did it again. This time we all worked together. And, and that's part of, the, part of the way it really works. You have to have a really good director if you're going to wild track people. And uh, that's probably, you know, if they're if it's not sounding right, that's probably why. So, do you prefer working ensemble or individually? Oh, I think it's more fun to work with the guys. Yeah, it's more fun to, it's more fun to work off of people. It's yeah. it's quicker to go in. And, I mean, we did we did all those Voltron shows in six months, and uh, whoa, 125 episodes, six months, and wow. and we would go in. It would take a half an hour to an hour for me to do all of my lines. And then Peter Cullen would go in and do all of his lines. And Lenny Weinberg would go and do all of his lines. And then Michael Bell would go in and do all of his lines. And so, uh, and we'd schmooze up in the lobby for a while. And then they, when we were done, we'd go. We were gone. And, uh, uh, and like I say, we made a ton of money. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, and all in six months. Jeez. Yeah, uh, Amy Jack was mentioning something about it was, I think, 1100 bucks per episode, and there was 125 you said? Yeah. That's a wow. lot of... I wish I could make that kind of I money, yeah. Really. yeah. And just having fun. I mean, that's the cool thing. I, I, but it's more it's fun, gotta... I would think, with people to work off of, you know, in a group setting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's why I like. That's why I've always considered voice acting kind of the unsung hero of acting because, you know, even though you can't see it, it's it's all in your head, and it's. I think it's a lot more like kind of like reading a book where you actually can hear things. I don't. Know, I guess I just take away more from hearing the thing as opposed to just watching the visuals, in my opinion. But you know, that's me. But the visuals are still cool, though. Well, you know, going back to when I said earlier that when I was growing up, uh, there was no television. And yeah. So, and we had radio, radio shows. And one of the things that they've always said about radio back then was radio was the theater of the mind. It didn't matter what the Lone Ranger looked like in reality, because in every kid's head, there was a masked man with the six guns and, and a white horse. And he was always slightly different depending on who the kid was. But, but so everybody created the theater in their own head. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the power of animation. I mean, you know, imagination as far as listening to radio, that's what makes it fun is you can play it all in your own head and make it however you want. Yeah. That's I, that's what I love too. Um, you know, I've always been somebody who likes to listen as opposed to just watching because I mean, because we don't we never got to experience what it was like just to have radio. We no, all but we had, have audiobooks and you know. Yeah. <laughs> We do now, yeah. but you know. Somebody, one of my one of my Facebook fans 
sent me, uh, I think, 100 episodes of The Lone Ranger. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, from the old radio shows. And uh, so one of these days I'm going to get around to listen to some of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking there... of radio, though, I mean, how did you make that transition from radio shows to TV shows in your work? Well, because I did Funny Voices on the air. And uh, so, and then I would had an agent in town, and I'd go out and, and audition. And uh, uh, so, uh, I would just audition for a character on the Smurfs or on on Super Friends or whatever. And uh, I get the part, you know. So once I got the part, then that led to the next part, and the next part, and the next part, because they'd say, "Okay, this guy can do this, and let's bring him in for this." And have to do a couple of incidentals, and each time you would stretch and show them that you did more and more and more, and it would just it blossomed from there. Did uh, Hanna Barbera approach you, or did you approach them for auditions, or how did that come about? Well, I think my agent sent me over to audition for uh, Wally Burr, uh, oh, okay. who, who was at that time was directing uh, Super Friends, and uh, I did Hawkman, The Flash, and Super Samurai on the Super Friends. I remember that, yep. And uh, so then that led to other shows. And, and uh, uh, what was the question? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> oh, well, uh, how, you, how you got involved with Hanna-Barbera? Yeah, I, I got involved because my agent sent me over there to audition for Wally for one of those shows. Uh, I did get, there was a, a wonderful talent named Bob Holt, who has since passed away. But he was the voice of the Grape Ape. Do you ever? Oh, I love yeah. the Grape Ape. One of my favorite cartoons from that generation. Oh, yes, yes, but yes. Bob was able to do what we call the human tuba, and so he he would play. He would talk as this tuba, and it was just nobody could ever do that, but just him. So they were looking for the voice of the Grape Ape, and I went over to Hanna Barbera to audition for it, and I realized what they really wanted was Bob. So I called him up and I said, "You got to call Alex Lovey over at Hanna Barbera and just do the the, the, the human tuba because he's looking for a huge voice." Bob got on the phone and won the part on the phone. Oh, awesome! Oh. Man, and I and like I said, I love the great babe. I mean, just hearing "rape, rape, rape, rape" was just so hysterically <laughs> funny. What a! I, I always thought, well, they had to have pitched that voice down, but I mean, that's his natural. Yeah. That's pretty impressive that was him doing it wow and i've never heard anybody even welker who could do that (laughs) did he have like did he have like a natural like um bassy voice or was his timbre more baritone do you remember like mine okay but he was just able to you know go way down further than that and talk you know big yeah, I, I, I can only get down so far in my voice, but um, that's, I mean, I, that's just mind-blowing to me. I'm, like, in just an awe of, like, just how talented he was. You can get down further if you try. It, it, here's my rule. You can, go, you can go up and you can do little, it took me a long time to be able to really get up into my falsetto. And I can't do it today because I'm coming off of a cold. But, right, right. But, uh, uh, and also getting really deep. But my rule is... While you're practicing getting down there, it when it starts hurting, stop. And, and I asked Bob, by the way, I said, does doing the tuba, does that hurt your throat? And he said, no. And he said, I can do it all day. Except that after one season of doing the grape ape, he had to go in and, and have some throat surgery done because he wore some nodules on his throat. Yeah, the polyps, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when I do um, when I do like a gravelly voice, you know, like like that, yeah. I have this issue where I just start coughing. Yeah, and I've never been able to quite master how not to do that because, gra- I mean, gravelly voices are really hard. I mean, I know people who do them say it just it's ripping your throat apart because right. you're pulling right from the back, just right at the back of your throat, and. For me, I just can't stop coughing. And I mean, I can do some really funny things with with that, you know, kind of like that Krusty the Clown type of growl or whatever. But I I can't do it for so long. I mean, if I do like a really like a 
a really deep one or whatever, I just start hacking my guts out, and it's you know it, it hurts after that. And then I feel like really worn out because I'm like, ugh, you know what I mean? Even the, and I think even the small role I, I did the voice of the Gordhead minister on Beetlejuice, who says, "Do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? <laughs> do you do you Beetle?" And he says, and he said, "No, nobody says the B word." And so it's a little short sequence. But I had to do it over and over and over, and it ripped my throat. And I, I always joke about that, that I, I went home and gargled to see if my neck leaked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I never, I, that's funny. That's funny. Um, that's what it is, you know, when mm-hmm. you do that, yeah. Now, since you'd worked with Wally Burr um, through Hanna-Barbera, then I assume that the Sunbow work that you did – Pretty much was just because he was heading over there too. That's right. It, yeah. It yeah. And so, wow. uh, but but it, the process was, Wally would call the the talent agency and say, "I need uh, some guys who big voice guys who can do this," and he would either have their talent list, and he would say, "Send me, uh, you know, Bud Davis, Jack Angel, and this guy and this guy," or he would say, "Who do you have? Who?" And uh, either way. It, when my name would come up, uh, you know, he knew me from from Super Friends, and he would say, "Yeah, bring Jack, send Jack." So I mean, I wound up doing seven different Transformers. Yep. Uh, not all on the same day, of course. Uh, you know, I Smokescreen and Ramjet were first, and then uh, they would either kill them off or not use them and create somebody new, and then create somebody new. And Robert Stack did. Uh, Ultra Magnus in the movie, and he wasn't going to do the series, so I was the guy that sounded as close to Robert Stack as anybody, so I got that role, you know? Yeah. I mean, what an honor that would be, though, to fill the role of, of um, Elliot Ness, you know what I mean? I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and that's the same with um, like Leonard Nimoy, who was the voice of Galvatron, ended up being played by uh, Frank Walker, who I think, as, as cool as Leonard is, Frank added this level of insanity to that character of Galvatron. Oh, absolutely. He really did. I mean, that guy was... I think he was more insane with that character than, let's say, Megatron was. Because Megatron was pretty, like... He seemed kind of like just kind of a chill Decepticon, but but no, Galvatron was just absolutely insanely nuts. And the way he delivered it was just, you know, brilliant. And even, even when you replaced um, Robert, you know... I couldn't really even tell a difference. I really couldn't, and that I think obviously that's a good thing because that says that it, it just played so smoothly. The transition was so smooth, you know. Yeah. And you know, like I said, that's why I've always said I've been a fan of your work, you know. And I remember watching the credits because one of the things about the credits is that you never knew what characters you guys played. They just either they didn't have you know enough room on you know on the credit screen or whatever, but it was always cool to watch the scrollers at the end of the Transformers movie to see like who did what characters you know even if they weren't featured in the movie, yeah. these you still knew who they were because they had been in the first two seasons, so it was it was really cool to see that you know that you know Jack Angel played like this 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 and this and uh, you know it was really cool because I never knew. You know, but now when I go back and watch those shows, I'm like, ah, that's Jack. I can hear it, you know, <laughs> and it's really cool. I, I love doing that. You mentioned Leonard Nimoy. Yes. I, uh, used, I uh, had a uh, friendly relationship with his secretary. And uh, so one time I went over to his office and he was there and he saw me. And it was in the 70s. And uh, uh, in the 70s, I had a handlebar mustache and hair down to the back of my neck. And uh, he was a photographer. So he said, oh, Jack, I have to take your picture. So he took a few pictures. Well, if you go to my website, jackangel.com, and you click on the About Jack, uh, some pictures will come up. And down near the end is a picture, the only picture of me with brown hair and the mustache and that's the picture that Leonard Nimoy took. Oh, cool. Interesting. That is cool. Now, obviously, um, he must have been a pretty cool guy, though, to, uh, I, to hang I'm around. I'm not anymore. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Um, Jack, by the way, what, you said that your, your wife's got a, a website? 
Yes, well, she's she's my agent. Right, right. She, she's her agency is called Arlene Thornton and Associates. And, and Associates, okay. And and so ArleneThornton.com is her website. Okay. And there's a lot of people on that website that you will know from growing up, and and mm-hmm. you know, uh, and uh, her her real name is Arlene Angel now because she's been married to me for 28 years. Right, but business-wise, her name is Arlene Thornton. So, it's a and and like I say, the reason I mentioned it before was that if you if you want to jog your memory as to which voices you do, go to arlenethornton.com and go to the animation and animation mails and start listening to them and writing down the stuff. You will be astounded at some of the voices that you've forgotten that you did. Oh, so cool. Um, and I remember, and I wanted to personally to say thank you to um, recommending both Amy and I to Pat Frawley's uh, website a while back uh, regarding some of the stuff that he did. Because I, I never knew as a kid that he was the voice of Krang on Ninja Turtles. And um, so that was pretty cool. And I, I appreciated you very much doing that because I know that he wrote a book. And uh, you said, you know, check out his website because he's got a lot of really good, like, little lessons and things like that you can learn from. And um, speaking of books, uh, what was the reason behind writing one for uh, yourself? Well, I wrote two. Or, I'm sorry, yes, both of them, yes. What was the, well, what was the inspiration behind that? One's an autobiography. Okay. And the inspiration for doing the autobiography was that um, – you know, I'd sit around with people like you, and and we'd we'd schmooze and talk and tell stories and stuff. And people, somebody would always say, "God, you tell the best stories." And so I thought, you know what? I had to write them down. And <laughs> you know, years ago, I started just writing them down, just to, so that I would remember them. And one thing led to another, and it turns into a book which I published. And the other one was how to succeed without ever losing. Inspiration for that was that there's a lot of disinformation. And it's been going on in this for years. For example, my number one P actors tell young actors that, that the rejection is terrible. Oh my God, you have to be able to stand all the rejection. But the matter is, there is no rejection. And, and added that out phrase of saying, unless you go drunk or surly or late consistently or whatever, you will ultimately get rejected. But that's not being explained. The thing they're playing is one selection. So if, if 10 guys go in to play motion for one part, people in the room get to decide which of those 10 guys wins the role. They're not rejecting anybody. They're choosing from who showed up. And the day that you got to show up, you got validated as being one of the best people in the world. Because if you're playing in L.A., for example, you're playing against the best people in the world. So you got validated. You're one of the best people in the world. And you got a shot at performing for one of the great directors. And if he doesn't use you for that, he may remember you for something else. Uh, So it's a win-win-win situation. And even when you don't get the part, uh, the, the, in my book, it explains that you have a ratio of wins to tries, and if it's one out of ten, that's your ratio. So you can expect to get one out of ten, but they aren't. It isn't number ten. It's like uh, ultimately it all balances out to be one out of ten unless it changes. So yeah, uh, but but that's not losing. Uh, if you're if you're Ratio is one out of ten. The faster you get through the nine that aren't yours, the faster you get to the one that is. So every time you don't get one, it's a win because you're one step closer to yours. It's all in how you look at it. I never thought of it that way. That's That's a good attitude. It's exactly that's exactly right. You can carry around a big bag of losses if you want to, and oh, I got lost a good one today. No, you never had it to lose. You have it to win. But you didn't win it. Let it go. The next one may be yours. And if not, let it go. And just keep going until you get to what's yours. Uh, I never lost one that wasn't mine. I only lost... I only didn't get some that I could have gotten if I'd been better or different. Or if it had been a different day. Or if wealth showed up. You know, I mean, there's all, all kinds of different reasons uh, of why you don't get them. Yeah, I love yeah, that. I totally That's understand so that. I know that for me, um, I I've always been one who doesn't take rejection well. But then after hearing your advice, though, it really inspires me to to kind of take a look and say, you know what? You, I mean, you can always apply well, that to anything in yeah, life. It, it, it is. And it's a, the whole book is a metaphor for living. Really. 
And there's a little scientific stuff that goes on in there, too. If you want to take all the stress out of your life uh, trying to win and, and do what you do in whatever field you're doing, uh, there's, a, there's a triangulation thing uh, that I won't go into now. But if you, if you buy the book and it's $9, uh, you can buy it on my website. Uh, it, the, scientifically, it'll show you how, where to put the emphasis in your life so that you're not chasing the dog's tail, you know? You, you, uh, you, you can, this whole thing is a great big adventure. Just go with the adventure. Life is one adventure after the other. And it doesn't matter how it turns out. It's just part of the adventure. So look back at it and, and, and just go out and play and, and have an adventurous time and you're gonna really enjoy yourself. That's all. And, and the book kind of goes, talks about stuff like that. And uh, so, uh, you know, regardless of what you decide to do with your life. Yeah. Well, as I said, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to picking up your book. Me too. For sure. Sounds like a must read. I, I agree. You know, cause I, I, I think they're both must reads. I, I, I think the, the autobiography is a must read. And, and they hear, here's what my wife says about it. It's so nice that the chapters are really short. I can take it to the bathroom and <laughs> later I'm done. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, an easy read as well. <laughs> there we go. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you, I know Amy wasn't a part of the uh, early conversation that we had, Jack, about where you're talking about, you know, these really awesome war stories and these um, when you were serving in the military. And But I could just, just from listening to those stories, I really felt like, you know, like everything was just coming to life, you know, and that to me is a good sign of a storyteller. And so to be able to enjoy, you know, your autobiography like that, you know, just to be able to, in, you know, inverse myself into that would be just phenomenal to really listen to these great stories that you have to share. I mean, that's for me, you know, aces. So. It was fun to put the book together, too. Yeah. Listen, guys, I got to go. Yeah, no problem. Uh, and it's been lovely talking to you, Amy. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> we enjoyed talking to you. Yes, thank you so much, Jack. Appreciate that. Okay, we'll, we'll talk again sometime. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 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 Show's over, Synergy. <laughs>